welcome to Unscripted Startups. I'm your host, Cameron Stack, here in the beautiful Silicon Slopes, Utah. This podcast is the place to be to receive actionable insight and advice for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Today, I am with Matt Huey. He is currently in the Entrepreneurship and Strategy PhD program here at the University of Utah, along with holding positions such as Air Force pilot, firefighter, then switching into Goldman Sachs associate, as well as a nonprofit founder. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cameron. Tell me a little bit about your past experience and why such a change from being an Air Force pilot to all the way being a PhD student here at the U. Yeah, well, you thumbed it up there. So uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Notre Dame and then uh, became an Air Force pilot flying uh, UH-1 helicopters for the Air Force and then transitioned into private industry and worked at Goldman Sachs for a while. I also worked for a startup and, uh, and for a marketing firm before eventually transitioning into uh, structural firefighting, which was really interesting and challenging, and then decided that uh, it was time for me to go back and finish my education, and I uh, got an MBA here at the University of Utah. And then, um, you know, I think with these... Uh, different professions I've been involved with, I was always looking for a challenge, and some of those were physical and some of those were mental, and combinations of those two things. And now I'm sort of in the uh, embarking upon the greatest mental challenge of my life, and that's getting a PhD in business here at the U. That's awesome. Uh, So what intrigued you about business, and what inspired the change from the public sector to the private sector? Yeah, I think uh, business and entrepreneurship, um, you know, they caught my attention uh, during my undergrad at Notre Dame. But I think just sort of like every, or at least I assume this is like everyone else, is that I'm sort of interested in the story. I'm interested in the, like, the you know, why you started this thing to begin with, like how you got it off the ground, what the challenges were, what the experience has been like. Uh, I've been fortunate to be able to interview over... 80 local uh, business leaders through uh, an initiative with uh, Salt Lake County, and I've interviewed uh, many more as uh, part of my association with uh, LaSonde and even the business school. Entrepreneur you speak with all have these unique and different stories, and I think it's just fascinating the way that people sort of arrive at entrepreneurship and business ownership. That's incredible. Uh, what impacted you the most while interviewing these people, and what did you take from those interviews? The biggest lesson I learned is that all forms of entrepreneurship have value. If you're running a business that's in the black, you are providing value to to that community. So I think in some ways, we definitely celebrate high growth entrepreneurship, the Facebooks and like the Snapchats of the world. But maybe we don't celebrate as much like the mom and pop entrepreneurs that just have one or two or three employees, but that have been doing it for 20 plus years, you know. And yeah, there's all forms, you know, whether it's like replicative entrepreneurship, necessity entrepreneurship, high growth entrepreneurship, all these individuals are just striving, you know, to do the best they can and and to ultimately bring value to the market. And I, I just think hearing those different stories has been what sort of intrigued me about entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, not everyone needs to build a Fortune 500 company or Facebook. A lot of people, uh, it's more about like building a career for themselves or providing for their family 
or doing something they love, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be a humongous company. I think that's great. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw you know all different types of entrepreneurs from those that had several years um, of work and industry experience to those that just you know hopped into it out of the gate. And they're all you know they all have a theory of you know what will work and and they try to bring that into the world and some of them make it, some of them don't. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on slow and steady growth model mm-hmm. versus like the Facebooks and the Ubers and the Airbnbs and like how how that works out and like the strategy behind it as well because not very many people do receive venture funding and I think it's like Everett hears about these companies but they don't hear about the companies that fail. So yeah, tell me a right. little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, so my memory serves me correct. That's uh, something called uh, Simpsons Paradox, where we don't hear about these companies that fail. And so all we see is this sort of straight line from low growth but successful entrepreneurs to high growth and successful entrepreneurs. We don't see those that failed at, at both ends of the spectrum. You know, I don't, I don't think that there's a, a bad strategy there. What I would say is that it's interesting, this phenomenon that we have going on now in our country and maybe around the world where we have these now public companies that um, several of whom have not turned a profit yet. So uh-huh. you can think of Uber and Lyft. Um, you know, I think food delivery businesses definitely haven't turned a profit yet. You know, I know Amazon uh, took them a, a long time. But there, but there you have evidence of a, very, a well-thought-out business model. Entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos, who from the beginning said to his investors, don't expect a profit, we're going to reinvest everything into the company. And so, at least hypothetically, you could think that, oh, well, maybe they were profitable early on, but they were just reinvesting and investing so heavily in research and development that that never came out on the bottom line. But what you see with these companies like Uber, they are, and, and even Tesla, they are burning through cash like crazy, and it's still sort of in question whether that business model will work. And I know for some of them, like Uber, they're relying on future technology and driverless vehicles to cut out some of those costs. That's built into their business model, and the premise is uh, to investors and to management that they will eventually be able to achieve this at some time in the near future, and the livelihood of their business model relies on this technology coming to fruition and if they can bring it to market. And so we'll see if they do that. Like everyone nowadays, it's all about personal brands and stuff, which is cool because you're able to show more of your personality and it's not a corporate like brand per se. But it's very hard to scale a personal brand because if, say, you get ran over by a bus, that business is gone. So what are your thoughts on like how can you involve your personality and make it not seem like we're a corporate bank thing, but also scalable? And That's a tough question because oftentimes uh, venture capitalists um, for these startups, they're not investing in, in the ideas so much. I mean, that might be the first hurdle, but really the second hurdle is like, can the team, can the CEO pull this off long term? So... From the very beginning, these individuals are sort of celebrated. And you see those individuals that are successful at bringing, you know, more startups into the world. They are the ones that are also getting more venture capital because they have a proven track record. How can you separate the individual from the company? Uh, That's difficult. I think it takes uh, a founder with a lot of uh, forethought and someone who is 
you know, once that company reaches a certain level of success, maybe stepping back. But at the same time, that might be your like sort of value proposition and how you sort of relate to your audience. So that might, you know, be in the immediate benefit of the company, but it might ultimately in the long term maybe hurt uh, the future of the company. And you can kind of think of like, you know, Apple today um, is still a very successful company, even without Steve Jobs at the helm. Um, so, you know, I, I think some of their users would have some gripes, but, you know, they're still, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, it is hard to imagine how like a company like Tesla could go, you know, forward without someone like Elon Musk yeah. at the helm. And I think it's probably maybe more important for those companies that haven't turned a profit quite yet. So, you know, maybe that's the line is that if you haven't turned a profit yet, that founder is immensely important uh, to that company moving forward and to the vision of that founder. Um, but maybe after uh, that company gets into the black, maybe that they're, maybe that company is just more equipped to handle a change like that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And it obviously depends on the business because like obviously Uber's founder is not the current CEO. I don't think SpaceX or Tesla, if Elon Musk, I don't think anyone really have much confidence in the brand. Right. Whereas like Microsoft, Bill Gates hasn't been running the day-to-day operations for a long time, but yet we still have a ton of trust for the brand and stuff. It goes back to when you think of that person, do you associate that with a brand? Or when you think of the brand, do you associate that with a person? When you think of like Warner Buffett, do you think of his company or do you think of him as a brilliant investor? It's how it's marketed and how you set up the company, I would assume. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into what everyone's been talking about lately, and that's the hot button topic of innovation. What does innovation mean to you and how can it be incorporated in startups? Because everyone knows like the startups, that's when they're the most innovative. But then as things go on, it becomes a little harder to innovate because you can't make changes and can't tweak things as fast. Right. But how do you think big companies are able to innovate as well? Yeah, so there's another great entrepreneurship buzzword is uh, innovation. I think that oftentimes, again, we sort of use innovation in one sense in like Ubering out and launching, you know, with their app and like revolutionizing the way that transportation is done, uh, particularly in big cities or like SpaceX, like you were saying, like with this relaunchable rocket. I think that there are a lot of shades of gray and there are varying degrees of innovation and sort of all that valuable. I know that's sort of a big tent approach. And also, I don't think it's imperative that companies have to innovate all the time. If you can innovate once, you know, and probably early on in the life of your company, you can create a competitive advantage for 50, maybe upwards of 100 years or or maybe even more. I mean, you know, if we take a look at like Coca-Cola, you know, this example, here's a company that would anyone, you know, on this campus say that Coca-Cola is an innovative company? Like... I wouldn't per se, but doesn't mean they aren't. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just don't. The way that we use the term innovation, uh-huh. I don't. Yeah. I, at least in the popular press, I don't think we would say Coca-Cola is an innovative company. Now, certainly, they're sort of acquiring companies that are, you could say, maybe somewhat innovative, and in that they're coming up with new drinks. Acquired Honest Tea five, six years ago, uh, was tea innovative? Yeah, I don't know. But Coca-Cola has been around since the late 1800s. So 
you know, here we are in 2019 and they're still one of the largest companies in the world. So while I think maybe, you know, if, if your business model relies on innovation, I think innovation might be important in the, the start and founding of your company. Is it, when posted on uh, LinkedIn, you know, not long ago, like, is it important that, you know, every other year a company has to come out with something innovative? I don't think so. I'll give you an example. Um, what's this? Hillsbury Farm. But, like, they switched the lid of their deli meat from red to blue because research, like, indicated that more consumers would buy that. Well, that turned out not to work. So they switched back to red and they called this an innovation. They spent millions of dollars on this. And this all occurred over like a two year period. And you know, each time that they, they transitioned from one color to the next, they called it an innovation. But like, was it, was it innovative? I don't know. I think we're, we're overusing the term to almost to the point where it's sort of meaningless and, and buzzy and people are going to look like if it doesn't have any meaning, people are going to look past it. Yeah, I think that brings up some excellent points. And that is like innovation in different contexts and in different industry mean a lot. I mean, like people in the soda game or the water business, they might think what they're doing is super innovative and it might be compared to their competitors. But if you like as a whole, you know, it comes down to the fact of people's perceptions and opinions because what you're doing might not be seen as innovative, but you might think it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread or whatever right. the case may be. So I feel like it's really down to like personal, do you see as innovative and then it comes down to your point of it being so clickbaity and like so like a key word yeah. that everyone wants it innovative has to be game changing whereas like if what they have works why switch it up you know yeah yeah i think you bring up a good point the more degrees that we're removed from the actual innovation and the outcome of that innovation the less likely we are probably to call it innovative, you know, right? Like I can remember when I was in the Air Force and we went from paper documents to PDF documents. And I thought that was like the bee's knees at the time, you know. <laughs> I thought that was super innovative. And for us it was, but, you know, it didn't, it probably didn't affect the public at large. And so I don't think anyone outside of, you know, that organization would say that it was, you know, innovative. Um, so I think that's a good point. What are your thoughts on the bootstrapping method and how someone can self-fund a business? Because I think the current stats, over 90% of businesses don't get venture funding. That's correct. Like I mentioned, this podcast is all about helping people build a self-funded business. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're spot on there. I think here in the state of Utah, less than 2% of companies get venture capital. And a lot of companies are self-funded, funded from sort of like short-term debt, like credit cards. Um, and friends and family is another, is another big one that we see. This is something that I want to study. Uh, me and some peers are looking at in terms of do firms that are self-funded versus firms that receive venture capital, you know, which one is sort of more efficient with their money? Um, which one sort of brings more value over the long term and which one can sort of makes prudent decisions in their their spending uh -huh. choices. I heard this not long ago is like idea is not a product and a product is not a business. The reason I bring that up is that, you know, I would always like 
challenge each entrepreneur to say like like the start of entrepreneurship is sort of like when you get that first dollar in. So I'd say like how far in advance can you move up that sort of time when you're getting revenue? Like can you increase that from, you know, six months from now to like now? You know, there was a, a story I heard about an individual that was selling like ad space on posters around some university. And before he even printed a single poster, he had sold like every square inch of the rights to that poster to different businesses around town. And when he went to print it all, like he already had the capital to print it all. He already had the profit in his pocket. He just had to go like put them up. You know, I, I know all businesses don't fall into this category, but I would challenge any business owner to say like, you know, what's your sort of minimum viable product? What can you get out to the consumer now and get them paying for it? Or what can you get the consumer to pay in advance for this? Um, you see this sort of with like, like some of the uh, crowdfunding campaigns and the kickstarting and that sort of thing. Uh, in my mind, if you really have a valuable idea, there's no better way to test it than to try to sell it. You know, why, uh-huh. why wait until you've sunk $10,000 into your crocheting business only to find out that we all have enough beanies and mittens to go around. You know, we don't need any home-sewn beanies for 120 bucks a pop. Yeah, I totally relate with that. And you can receive insight and you can receive advice from people, but it really doesn't matter until you have that dollar in your hand because your family and your friends will say all sorts of nice things about your business, but they're most likely not your customer and like money speaks. So as soon as you have that dollar in your hand, then you can like really rely on is someone willing to pay for it because talk is cheap, but money is what speaks. So Yeah. And at the same time, I don't think you can build a product sort of in a, in a vacuum and expect customers to come to you. You have to be, if, if you're the founder and it's just you or you and a small team, someone has to pick up the torch and become, you know, the marketer. Someone has to put this in front of people yeah. and say, hey, look at this, pay attention to this. I mean, you might only have one shot at that, but as as a founder, I know a lot of individuals just start uh, companies, you know, solo. And so if you're that founder, you can't just be the engineer and think that, you know, people will come and find your product just doesn't work that way. We all have constraints on time. We all have a shortening sort of attention span. And, you know, if you build a computer in in your basement and you don't tell anyone about it, guess what? No one's going to buy it. So you have to also be a salesman and, and explain to people why this would be good for them and their lives. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's the best computer or cell phone on the market. If they don't know how to use it or they don't know about it, then it's worthless. And I'll admit that's easier said than done. Whether it's like starting a business or publishing in the academic community, you have to convince people of the merits of that thing you're putting in front of them. And that's a tough, a tough task. And that's why those that are able to excel at that, they're usually able to accelerate the growth of their businesses. Yeah. And it's really crucial to get those first few fans, because if you can get someone who's really loyal to your product, like some of the new millennial brands that have been popping up that almost have like a cult-like following, once you can get people like that to love your brand, then they almost do some of the selling. Not all of it, but they help move the brand forward because they have such a passion. But then that's also super hard to find those people who love your brand and 
where I've seen some brands go wrong is they don't listen to their customers. They don't listen to those loyal fans, and then it ticks them off. A good example of this was 3D printing bubble that happened in like 2008, I believe it was, where there was MakerBot and a few other brands. But MakerBot was all based on the crowd sharing platform and how to make things and share it with the community and stuff. But as the company grew. And became more of a corporate company. They started taking less and less of their core principles of the community sharing and stuff, and that really ticked people off.、Um, there's actually a good documentary on that on Hulu and Amazon、mm. about the the rise of the 3D printers and stuff. And that made me think because like their whole community was based off these do-it-yourself community shared resources and stuff like that. The community felt like they were being abandoned once they became a publicly traded company and were acquired, and decided that they wanted to go after more of a professional aspect and like ditch their first customers. So、mm-hmm. I think that's a good example of what not to do、yeah. depending on your circumstances. Yeah, I think that's、uh, spot on. What has been some insight or advice that you have received? And you really feel like that has helped you in your professional or personal life in regards to business. I think the biggest piece、uh, of advice that I would give, and this comes just directly from a lesson I learned when interviewing a business owner, and maybe I'll just tell that story, and you can kind of、um, see the lesson sort of for yourself. I went to this fencing company somewhere here in the valley in Salt Lake, and met with this older gentleman, full on sort of. Old school gentleman, you know, like sort of had the white hair and the very nice but sort of out of fashion type suit,、uh, very sort of affable and and really insightful. And so I get the chatting with him, and、uh, for this encounter, I had had this sort of preoccupation with these sort of high growth companies, like you know, oh, like you know, Facebook and Tesla and these others, like just the, you know that business model. It's so sexy. It's like you know, it's so glamorous. So you know, was chatting to this individual, and and his firm is maybe you know at the most twenty employees, and you know I sort of asked him why he got into it, why he's you know selling this fence, like you know what's what's sort of in it for him, not directly, but in sort of you know different roundabout ways.、Um, there were two different stories within just this one firm. One was he was employing ex-felons, and he felt it a vital part of their mission to help. These individuals get back on their feet、uh-huh. and to give them a second chance, and he felt very passionate about this. So by you know providing these fencing services, he could you know create this value not only for the customers that were buying his product, but for these individuals that he was employing and and giving a second chance, and that was very evident. And then the other thing that I realized was he then later told me a story about how one of his employees. Got cancer and had to miss a lot of work. And he went on to explain that he was very flexible with this employee. This employee had been with him for a long time, and that、uh, he provided very sort of like a flexible work schedule so that employee could go and seek treatment and and do the things that he needed to do to, you know, make sure he was taking care of himself. And that that's a rare story. And so I sort just sort of asked him, why sort of why are you making this? Investment in your employee, like I, th- I think a lot of companies nowadays, it wouldn't have made the same arrangements that this employer、uh-huh. made. And he said、uh, it was all about loyalty. 
that he that this employee had been with him for years and years and years and had given you know in in service like years of his life and he felt like he owed it to this employee to to be flexible and, and help him through this time and it was after this encounter with this entrepreneur that I came to realize that any business that is providing a value to their customers or to their community like is a valuable business in and of itself. There is no right or wrong form of entrepreneurship is the message that I would send out to, to your listeners is that whether you're, you know, buying into a franchise and starting a business that way or whether you're, you know, trying to get some new tech startup off the ground or some, you know, pharmaceutical startup uh, or medical device, like, or, or maybe you're passionate about food and you want to get a restaurant off the ground. Like, there's no right or wrong form of entrepreneurship. We're all dealing with very similar problems. And if you can be, if you can provide value to your customers, that means that you can provide value to those who you employ. And that could be one to 100, you know, employees. And by providing them with jobs, you're providing them with a way to support their families, but support their local communities. And so I think that any way that we can bring, you know, value into this world, no matter what the form it takes, is to be redundant, but valuable in and of itself. Well, I think that's an excellent point to leave this podcast at. Thanks, Matt, for coming on the show. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button and start downloading each and every episode of our podcast. It only takes than 30 seconds and it means the absolute world to us. I hope you guys have an incredible week. And don't forget to live life 1% better each and every day. Until next time, this has been a Unscripted Startups production. Don't forget to check us out online at unscriptedstartups.com or on your favorite social media platform at Unscripted Startups. Startups.